we want to tell you about some of the reasons why you uh, donate to uh, WJFF. Our volunteers put in a lot of time to make something different that you're not going to hear on the uh, other stations. We're your community radio station at the Be Your Community Radio Station. We need your support to keep things going. We want you to pick up your phone or your computer and go to WJFFradio.org and hit that donate button. Hit it several times. Says there's still a chance of some snow tonight. Overnight low down to 35, so it won't even be freezing. Don't expect that snow to add up to anything if it does come. Chance of rain or snow showers tomorrow. Slight chance of rain or snow tomorrow with a high getting up to 45. Mostly cloudy tomorrow night. Overnight low down to 30. Cloudy on Wednesday with a high of 49. Temperatures uh, pretty much the same for the next couple days after that. And no sign of precipitation. This is WJFF. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Trump told governors today the forecast is for more coronavirus deaths if the nation does not incorporate social distancing. president also saying the number of reported coronavirus cases isn't likely to peak for several weeks, which is part of the reason for an extension of that order. The announcement comes as some governors were announcing extended guidelines of their own. Here's NPR's Moore Eliasson. For now, the president has caught up with the governors. There is a consensus among mostly Democratic governors, some Republican governors, too. They are leading the way. They have already extended their restrictions until the end of April. Now the president is catching up with them. And what we see from public opinion polls are that voters overwhelmingly accept this painful trade-off. They're willing to take these restrictions, at least for now, uh, rather than risk the public health. NPR's Mara Liason. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has put out an urgent plea for medical volunteers as the number of deaths from COVID-19, the disease caused by the fast-spreading coronavirus, mount in his state. Cuomo says the stress being put on the city's medical systems is likely a preview of what other states and cities across the country will face. Cuomo's plea came as more than 1,200 people in New York State have now died, most in New York City. Navy hospital ship arrived there today to help relieve some of the pressure on city hospitals. Ford says it will build ventilators at a plant in Michigan, aiming to produce 50,000 of them by midsummer. NPO's Camila Dominoski reports production will start at the end of April. Ford is working with GE Health to build a relatively simple ventilator, licensed from a small medical technology company. Auto workers who choose to participate will build the ventilators at a component plant in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Ford has a more complicated ventilator project in the works also. Meanwhile, General Motors is preparing to build ventilators at a plant in Indiana starting next month. The Trump administration first asked automakers to produce ventilators, then threatened to force them. But it has not actually finalized contracts to buy those ventilators. Ford says those talks are continuing. Camila Dominowski, NPR News. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says lawmakers have started assembling proposals for the next round of coronavirus relief legislation. In a conference call today, Pelosi said Congress should focus next on how to meet health care workers and others' needs who are treating patients. Our heroic health care workers are falling ill with the very disease they are working to treat. Our very first responders, TSA officers, firefighters, uh, law enforcement, TSA officers, and other frontline workers are being put in jeopardy, as well as putting their families in jeopardy. Pelosi says the next bill should also include extended family and medical leave, increased food stamp benefits, and another round of direct cash payments for eligible Americans. Stocks moved higher today on Wall Street, partly in response to big gains in some health care companies. The Dow was up 690 points. The Nasdaq rose 271 points. This is NPR. Canada says it will effectively nationalize many of its private payrolls. The government there saying the businesses, large and small, will be given a 75% wage subsidy for their employees due to the coronavirus pandemic. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says businesses that have seen a 30% decrease in revenues are eligible. Canada's Prime Minister says the government will cover up to 75% of the salary of the first 58700 Canadian dollars earned. 
Reproductive rights groups are filing a lawsuit aimed at keeping abortions available in Iowa during the coronavirus pandemic. That follows an order by that state's Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, to suspend abortions. Empire Sarah McCammon has more. Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds is among a growing number of Republican state officials who sought to force an end to most abortions in their states during the pandemic. Reproductive health groups say abortion is an essential procedure that should not be delayed. But some officials who oppose abortion rights say the procedures should be canceled during the pandemic to help preserve supplies like masks and surgical gowns. The American Civil Liberties Union and Planned Parenthood have filed a lawsuit in a county district court in Iowa asking the court to block the governor's order prohibiting most abortions. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Pope Francis's vicar for Rome has tested positive for the coronavirus in what is being described as the first case of a cardinal close to the pope known to have been infected. Cardinal Angelo de Donatus was in touch with Francis in recent weeks, though apparently not in person. The church says that de Donatus is reported to be in good condition at Rome's Gemelli Hospital, where he's receiving antiviral treatments. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. And this is WJFF. And just a reminder that the latest numbers from Sullivan County Public Health are that there are 106 confirmed cases as of this afternoon in Sullivan County, and that Sullivan County is experiencing its first uh, death due to coronavirus that we know of. That's the news from today. Time now for uh, um, Making Waves. Good evening and welcome to WJFF's Making Waves. Making Waves is an hour-long radio magazine that airs here on WJFF every Monday evening at 7 p.m. As a radio magazine, Making Waves brings together a number of segments each week from our team of volunteer radio producers and other members of the community. My name is Barbara and I'm your host for tonight. Just after the Kingfisher Project, Making Waves will welcome Chuck Hine and Daniel Feiberg to the airwaves with their live summary on how to store the sun for homes and businesses. And then to wrap it up, we will hear from Delaware Currents publisher and editor Meg McGuire about Congressman Antonio Delgado and what he had to say about federal funding for the Upper Delaware River. And first, here's the Kingfisher Project, our ongoing examination of the heroin and addiction epidemic. And uh, here's Julie Pizal to tell us more about that. Welcome to the Kingfisher Project, an information and radio project based here at WJFF. The project was established in 2014 in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Pizal, who was shot and killed due to her addiction to heroin. The project is named for the injured bird Rebecca rescued while she was a senior in high school. At her memorial service, her former teacher, Mr. Ogazalik, read her essay. And since then, a number of people wanted to do something to draw the attention to the opioid crisis here and across the country. And that's how the Kingfisher Project started. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julie. You're welcome. And now we'll, uh, we'll get right to it. We're going to hear from the Rockefeller Institute researchers. Uh, they are coming to us in this podcast from the Dynamite Youth Center where, as the researchers say, music and gardening is as important as medication. Welcome to Policy Outsider from the Rockefeller Institute of Government. Today, we're at Dynamite Youth Center in Sullivan County, New York, following two of our researchers as they continue their long-term study of the opioid crisis in this rural community. And we're meeting this band. My name is Billy. I'm 25 years old. I play guitar and I sing. My name is Joe, I'm 21, kind of play a little bit of everything, just bounce around when they need me, and uh, yeah. Hey, what's happening here? Uh, James Morano, uh, play guitar and vocals. What's going on? I'm Austin, uh, 26, uh, I work here at Dynamite, and I'm part of the band. I jump on as many instruments as I can play, because I love playing music. What's up? My name is Rush, um, I am 25 years old, I also work here at Dynamite Youth Center, and I am a drummer and a guitarist. Also, I play the bass sometimes, too. We are the Dynamite Youth Collective.
Michelle Adams, Communications Director at the Rockefeller Institute. For the next 30 minutes or so, we're tagging along with two of the researchers behind our Stories from Sullivan Project, which aims to understand and portray how the opioid epidemic really plays out on the ground in rural communities like this. So far, they've interviewed more than 100 people on the front lines of the crisis over more than a year of research. We're publishing their reports in real time, rather than waiting for a final product at the end, so that you can learn as we learn. You can read the series at rockinst.org, or follow on social media with the hashtag StoriesFromSullivan. Today, we're giving you a peek behind the research to get a sense of the kinds of interactions and conversations that our researchers have when they come down here, and to give you a chance to hear directly from some of the people at the heart of the opioid crisis. I'm the Director for Policy and Research at the Rockefeller Institute of Government. And my name is Katie Zuber. I'm the Assistant Director for Policy and Research at the Rockefeller Institute. We are in Fallsburg, New York, in Sullivan County, and we are here talking to the folks at the Dynamite Youth Center about their program. And we've toured the facility here, and we've talked to the members here, um, and we've got to hear their voice about what it is they do, how their day looks, and why this particular program looks the way it does, which is different from many programs. It's a longer-term program. It focuses only on youth 18 to 25. It um, is a very structured program. It gives the members a lot of skills. They have a lot of um, responsibilities that they earn and they take on here. And we really wanted to get a sense of, we know what the statistics are, um, the statistics don't look good, but we want to get a sense of what local communities are experiencing, uh, how they're addressing this, this particular crisis, and what they really need to respond. And the best way to do that is to speak to the people on the front lines who face down this crisis every day. We've talked to um, everyone who touches this issue, so health uh, officials, we've talked to policy officials, we've talked to elected officials, we've talked to doctors and to nurses, we've talked to treatment providers, attorneys, district attorneys, law enforcement, the sheriff. Today was really special, though, because we really got a chance to talk to some of the people who benefit from these programs, not just the people who are in these programs, in addition to the people who run these programs. And that provided some really unique perspective. You know, we talk about the opioid crisis in these very general terms, but people on the ground face very real and very particular problems in terms of uh, staffing, in terms of funding, in terms of the kind of resources that they get from the state. Um, and it's, it's hard work, and people who are doing it are very dedicated, but at a certain point... It, beca it makes it harder to do a good job when the problem is getting bigger and they have more and more people using drugs and the resources that are available aren't growing at the same rate. And it's a very complex, complicated problem. It's not isolated to the criminal justice and public health systems. When you're talking about the opioid epidemic, you're talking about the foster care system, you're talking about schools, you're talking about education, you're talking about families. And so we talk about that in the context of the spillover effects. Um, and so understanding the intricacies of the problem and how it affects all of these other aspects beyond just what you would think of as being a criminal justice problem or a public health problem. It's much bigger than that. It's hard sometimes for people to get the treatment that may be available, that they have barriers um, that, that policymakers and health officials need to work on. One is access to services, making sure that services are open and available, and that includes insurance restrictions um, that limits the length of stay for how long someone might be able to go into treatment. You know, the, the questions about what... what beyond just individual treatment, what government should be doing and how we can actually fix the system itself and what we need to change about the system and how it operates. Uh, and we talk a lot about how this is, a, um, this is a disease. We need to start treating it like a disease, and government itself needs to 
kind of reorient itself and, and and start thinking about how we move from an acute system of care to understanding and treating this as a chronic condition. And there's inequities within the system. So the same kind of job will get paid a lot more in one environment versus another. There's staffing shortages. There's... Um, real issues that policymakers can address, and we hear lots of things um, from folks on the front lines about stuff that they should just take away. So not just we need more whatever it is we need, but we need to, things to be taken away, particularly regulations that may not be effective and may actually hamper um, people's ability to get better. A week ago, we, we heard about uh, smoking regulations so that if someone... You know, there's a harm reduction approach at this particular place, and if someone is uh, using heroin and they come in for treatment and then they relapse and use heroin again, they are allowed to stay. But if they are um, caught smoking on the premises, then they're kicked out of the program. And so the... Um, Just smoking cigarettes. Smoking cigarettes. So the big picture, it seems to be that these rules and regulations are made in pieces and that nobody sits and puts them all together and say, well, what's the effect on communities, on facilities that are providing treatment, and on the people who are trying to get better. Executive Director, Dynamic Youth Community, slash Dynamite Youth Center. Karen Carlini, Associate Director, Dynamic Youth Community. We started our residential program in Sullivan County in Fallsburg, New York in 1973, and we are the oldest uh, program exclusively for adolescents and young adults in long-term residence in the state of New York. So from our very beginning, that's all we ever dealt with was young people and their problems with drugs and, you know, taking drugs and trying to work with them and really getting them to a better place. So we're at it almost 50 years now. So, I mean, in those years, there's been a lot of experience that we've had that have led to, for us, some real uh, basic knowledge of what goes on for young people and how and how they get involved with drugs and how they can get uninvolved with drugs and, you know, and do, and do better for themselves. But certainly, uh, but certainly all that time that we've spent doing this, uh, we've seen patterns that don't change no matter what the drug of choice is. We have in this program, we have um, room for 86. That's our capacity. Um, 86 kids in Brooklyn. We have 16 beds in a community residence. And our outpatient, it fluctuates anywhere from 50, well, in the day program, like 50. Um, in the night program, it's about uh, 20 to 25, you know, at any given time. Probably important to say that the program is a continuum, so um, everyone starts at this level of care in the intensive residential program, um, and that's because they meet the criteria for this level of care. If they don't need this level, they'll start, we refer them somewhere else. So they start here, and then eventually um, they have the opportunity to stay here for as long as a year, sometimes a little longer. Lately, we've had some challenges with beds not being available for the next level, but um, then they transfer to our outpatient program where they can attend daily, five days a week. They step down into three days and finally to two nights and one night, and that process happens over a period of a couple of years. So what they're able to do in that time is through every transition, whether it's getting a job, um, getting back with their family, getting their own apartment, you know, being independent, um, relationships, education, like all of the things that the young people present challenges in and of themselves, never, never mind if you had an opioid addiction. You know, those are challenges for anybody and having support is helpful. 
So putting other layers on top of this where you had years of addiction and you're just beginning at maybe age 23 or 24 and you're in school, in college with 20 and 21-year-olds whose idea of a good time is to go drinking all night and funneling and, you know, smoking weed and now you how am I going to do this, you know? So we're there to provide that kind of support on a continued basis until they're finally ready to go out on their own and they do and they become independent and they... You mentioned earlier the various uh, cycles of drug use that you've been seeing, um, you know, over the past 50 years. How does the opioid epidemic compare to those previous cycles? Um, Well, the worst. (laughs) I'll say that right off the bat. Um, It comes with so many challenges. The level of addiction just in terms of what happens scientifically or biologically to the brain is different than what we've seen with other drugs. So that in and of itself makes the challenge even greater. The, um, the supply and demand is, makes the challenge even greater. I mean, it's so available. The normalizing of opioids um, in terms of um, legal use and prescribed use, you know, it, it made what was a very dangerous drug you know, it sort of normalized it because doctors were prescribing it for pain so people would be more comfortable. It sounds right. It sounds like the right thing to do and then created this problem. That's very different than what we saw during the crack epidemic. People were very clear. The lines were very clear. Crack is bad. You know, cocaine is bad. Street drugs are bad. You know, drug dealers are bad. You could tell they look bad. You know, this, you don't, the drug dealer could be wearing a white coat. You know, you can't tell, you can't recognize the problem all the time. So that, for us, is really what makes it so bad uh, and so much of a challenge and, and just very difficult. I mean, We were on a tour earlier. Um, can you talk a little bit about the things that we saw? We saw a band and a gym and classrooms and greenhouses, butterfly gardens, <laughs> running horses. <laughs> Well, you you know, it's a program for youth, so I mean, there's all kinds of things. I guess the basic philosophy is you've taken drugs out of your life, and what's going to replace that? What's going to, use an old-fashioned term, turn you on? You know, what's going to make you feel good today? You know, what, what can you replace it with? So people discover things or go back to things that they used to do, whether it be uh, they never ran a marathon in their life, but gee, I want to try to do that. So they'll practice every day in the morning uh, running and everything like that. And of course, a few drop out, but actually five or six of them just finished running a 26-mile marathon. And uh, they are like proud of that like you can't believe because it, this, what an accomplishment. And, and it truly is. Uh, people that, uh, you know, used to uh, be musicians or in a band or wanted to be in a band, they'll work and, and at nighttime they'll, they'll, they'll work with each other and put a band together and we try to get them some performances and some recovery things that are going on around New York State and they just, you know, they just eat it up and again, it gives them something for them to do. We have a greenhouse that we built about four or five years ago. So we've, you know, wound up with some young people who never thought that they would like doing that, but all of a sudden when they started doing it, felt like, wow, this is something that I really enjoy doing, you know, and it gives me a little something that I feel good about. So I guess we kind of try to seek those things out along with the membership on what what kind of things on a positive and a constructive way that they can go to. You know, in in Brooklyn we have video editing that we do a lot more than we do up here, but people who are involved with those kind of things, some of them wind up going to school for that and, and, and things like that. None of it's Medicaid reimbursable, but it really is a key factor to how people actually wind up gaining recovery is when they can actually, you know, see an alternative that for them makes sense. And they're not, I mean, I think it's important to say just for the purposes of people who don't know who we are. I mean, we're certified and funded by the Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services. So it's, you know, a certified organization (laughs) that knows what they're doing. There's counseling services that go on. There's group counseling and individual counseling. There's educational services that happen that are provided by 
the New York yeah. City Department of Education, even though we're up here. So there's all, so all sorts of certified yeah. activities that help. But if we try to do that by itself and just have group counseling sessions and individual counseling sessions for kids or people this age, it would never work. And most of what we've learned, Billy and I both have been, Billy from the very beginning started with Dynamite. Um, I came soon after that. So it's... 1970. Right. And I came a few years after that. And it's, you know, in, in all that time, we spend, we, we watch the kids. We listen to what they say. We, one of the biggest reasons we got this, this uh, program up here is because the kids in the outpatient in Brooklyn were saying we need to get away from our neighborhoods. We want to get away. It's too hard. It's too hard to be around people and places and things. And we're not. So we raised the money and, and they helped and everybody contributed. It was a very new organization. And over the years, the program's evolved to something based on what the people, the young people say works for them. Today, I listened to everything they said because it helped me to know we're doing some things right and maybe some things we can do differently, you know, but I listen, we listen to everything they say. And I think that they feel that. And again, those, those are the services that don't get any funding. And since they don't get any funding, we do them anyway. But, you know, on some hand, you know, a lot of that falls by the wayside and is not considered to be important. And we find it to be integral. We also do counseling services a lot, you know. So, and we do all those, we do all the, the usual things that are in a that are in a rehab, you know. So we we, we do have those, you know, you know. We know that those services are essential as and well. I think the frustrating part is it's not so much. I mean, we we work really hard. We try to you know raise money for some of the extracurricular activities that we do. Um, Oasis, we're Oasis funded, so there's some state aid that helps um, as well. I think the frustration is in the lack of understanding on the value of this work. You know, it isn't the funding, not the funding. And we, we do say because <clears throat> there's so much pressure on us to increase the services that are billable so that we can increase revenue and take the burden, you know, off the state um, in terms of the state aid. Okay, we get that. Nobody is going to argue with that's a good idea. But then we talk about, well, if we don't give people what they need, what is it going to cost in the long run? So we get that, but not everybody gets the long run. So that's frustrating to us. But the bigger part with these other activities is when they look and say, and they look at you like, that's why I interrupted Bill, because I wanted people to understand that there's a lot happening. It's really very comprehen comprehensive services. But also, as essential as that group therapy session is that greenhouse for somebody, or the band, or you know the softball teams that we have. The softball teams, I mean, those, those kids have the highest retention of any other group in the program. Are, and this is over like a 25-year period. They have the highest retention of anybody, the kids on the soccer team. And the kids in the band, you know, any of these, the kids that are involved in these kinds of projects are the kids that do better. Same with family participation. The kids whose parents come and get involved. It's been documented. We were part of a study many years ago that proves, you know, if the parents come, it helps. So there's all sorts of things we know because... We've seen it, like we know it because we know it, but we've seen it, we've witnessed it. We've seen uh, someone that, you know, people that have been in the, pro were in the program 30 years ago, and now, you know, their life is, you, it's un you'd never know, you know, that they went to treatment or had any sort of problem. They're living their life like anybody else. And we do have some of the highest retention in, in the state. Now, there's 28-day programs that may say they have higher retention, but it's higher retention because they didn't really spend much time there. So for a year program, we run somewhere, and it, it varies, but somewhere between 50 and 65%. Yeah, I think we're probably about over, over 55 now. We've been as high as 72. Uh, we that's been the, one year in treatment. That's been one year in treatment. You know, absent of... Transitions. And, and we attribute the lower retention, again, to more choices, too many options... Um, I can go to an outpatient and, you know, I, I don't have to make this commitment. Or This is a big commitment. And um, if you could talk to probably any kid here would tell you when they first came here, they didn't really want to be here. A uh, few will say, if you said even today, they surrendered, they walked in, they were ready. So that happens as well. But it takes a while for them to really want this. But once they want it, it works. 
talking to these individuals, especially a young, a young group. Uh, somebody said to us, there's a lot of adults talking. And I think it's really important to think about how our response is not going to be a blanket response that works across all age groups, across all demographics, and that it's really important for voices to be heard. I mean, to hear the young woman who said, I was the youngest person in every program that I went to, and nobody got me. You know, and so when we are talking about what our response needs to be or what government should be doing, you sh we need to really take into account that not everybody is the same, and not the same thing isn't going to work for everybody. And if you really want to understand what people need, you have to have a conversation with them. We were listening to the podcast recorded by the Rockefeller Institute Think Tank and the researchers on the stories from Sullivan series. Uh, they were talking to staff and residents at the Dynamite Youth Center in South Fallsburg, a long-term drug treatment center here in Sullivan County. And one announcement about uh, the substance abuse issue tomorrow, Livingston Manor, uh, at the park, at the Renaissance Park there, there will be a meeting from 4 to 6 p.m. about substance use prevention. And that's a community meeting in Livingston Manor tomorrow, Tuesday, from 4 to 6 p.m. And now, coming up next, Making Waves welcomes Chuck Hine to the studio and Daniel Freiberg to the airwaves with their summary on how to store the sun for homes and businesses. Okay, Chuck. Can you um, tell us a little bit about SEEDS and the upcoming forum? Okay, Kevin, thank you. Um, SEEDS actually stands for Sustainable Energy Education and Development Support. Uh, it's been an organization in existence since 2008, and we have spent uh, all these years uh, bringing information and technology and uh, programs to do just that. Uh, we, we promote energy efficiency, renewable energy, and sustainable living to improve our environment and local e economies. Okay. And who, who are going to be some of the uh, guest speakers tomorrow? Uh, yeah. So we've uh, we've had forums on uh, all uh, aspects of the uh, alternative energy uh, cycle, and one of them that's been uh, missing uh, in that is talking about storage batteries, which are the devices that will um, store power that's generated by the solar, and then you can use it to uh, run either a household or, in the case of one of our speakers tonight, uh, Daniel Freiberg, will talk about how that's used in the industry. Um, there are a number of those batteries out there now, and they're ever-changing and ever-improving. And that's one of the topics of the discussion tonight, is to actually speak to where we are in that world. Okay. Um, Daniel. Can, are you with us? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. So, Dan, can you um, tell us a little bit about um, the uh, the battery storage and and what that means to uh, I guess the future on how <clears throat> people are going to power their homes and and businesses yeah. and whatnot. Um. Really, a battery storage is nothing new. It's been with us for quite a long time. Uh, if you think about it, you have perhaps a little uh, alarm clock at your little table next to your bed, and typically you have a little battery in there to make sure you have uh, power and uh, that the time is still there and you wake up even when there is no power. Um, that is a, you know, a classic case of uh, energy storage where you have power available when the grid is not available. Okay. Um, now, as we are uh, uh, moving into renewables, uh, storage is going to play a very important role. Um, 
to help basically uh, smooth out variations. I think that is the, the, the most important. And it's not only solar, it's wind. Uh, a lot of uh, these uh, renewable resources that we are developing um, uh, have one flaw, and that is that they are uh, a little bit unpredictable. People have been trying to predict, you know, when it's windy or when there is sunshine. But uh, we always have the issue with um, um, knowing exactly how much we generate and when we generate power. But uh, if you imagine that um, when we have sun and um, we, are, we are generating power, um, we will store some of the power uh, into batteries. Uh, while also obviously uh, uh, generate power for anything else where you need power. And then perhaps you have a uh, cloud coming in, let's say a little thunderstorm or something like that. What would typically happen if you didn't have any storage would be that the power generation would go down and this power would then have to come from somewhere else. But with uh, um, having batteries available, you obviously can ride through, basically let the batteries fill in the gaps that you see when you get a cloud in the sky or when the wind is not blowing, um, things like that. And um, um, during uh, the first years or, the, the, you know, up to this point, it may have not been so important because we have so many other gener uh, uh, ways of generating power. But as more and more of the, uh, the, the base, base generation is starting to come from uh, renewables, uh, we see that these uh, variations are very important to take care of. Otherwise, we will eventually see a collapse of the grid and you will see blackouts uh, where power disappears. So, so um, yes, uh, energy storage is here. It will be growing tremendously over uh, the next few years as we are building out the uh, renewable infrastructure. And uh, it is really exciting to be, uh, to be part of that business. Daniel, when, like in the evening, if you have uh, this, we're talking like around here, it would it could be solar and, and some wind, um, but I, I would I would guess predominantly solar. Um, the the now, not only are you you're you're say you're running your house and um, maybe not all the appliances. Um, I mean, there's a lot of electricity that that is needed for, say, a, a stove or, or a furnace or heating your house. Um, you know, with baseboard, electric baseboard, that that's maybe not sustainable. How do we, how do you address that? Um, yeah, it's um, uh, up until this point. It has been very difficult because uh, the batteries uh, have been very expensive in the past. Uh, but if we look at the trend and where we're at now, even compared to five years ago, cost of batteries today are around 20% of where they were five years ago, and that trend is continuing. Uh, that means that um, it is going to be in economic, economically viable to actually have batteries that last all night, Mm -hmm. um, so you can basically harvest um, uh, sun uh, during the day, and uh, you can store this energy and have enough energy, even to cover you know the typical household loads um, uh, over overnight. And um, there are more and more battery technology. I'm actually involved in one myself, where we are specializing on these long-term, longer-term uh, durations. Uh, we're talking eight to ten hour um, uh, duration of, of um, discharge of batteries versus what traditionally, you know, you <laughs> you think about a car, uh, you, you 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 crank the starter and uh, if you do it a few many times, uh, uh, the battery dies right. or uh, is discharged. But uh, there's so much new technology, so much new um, um, chemistry and, and battery technology uh, that has been developed over the last few years, and the cost has gone down, which is enabling us to, to, to build this for the future. Daniel, can you talk about the, that, the new technology and, and, and the, the new batteries? 
as a, a you know I think lithium is like a really big thing and can you yeah. t- address that a little bit? The, yeah, uh, in, the, the old traditional battery that we know that has been around for over hundred years is what we call lead acid batteries. Same type you have typically in RVs. In uh, also, it's still used for backup power in in homes and and um, um, uh, in many different applications. But uh, it does have a flaw. First of all, um, cycle life. That is something. That's something. When we talk batteries, we talk about cycles. That's basically how many uh, discharge and charge events can you have on a battery before it doesn't work anymore and lead acid is not very good in that region you know it may last a year or two maybe three years and um, um, after that um, uh, it's no good anymore you have to change them out uh, lithium ion which is a technology really that is the same type you use in cell phone and in laptops uh, but it's also used for grid storage, and, and, and even in homes. You've probably heard about the Tesla Powerwall, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the difference between technolo- that technology and maybe traditional lead acid is really that we've been able to shrink and make package uh, the battery uh, to the point where you can store an enormous amount of energy in a very little space. And at the same time, driving the costs down, so it becomes more and more affordable. Um, that that's really the, the the big difference. That power density has increased enormously compared to what we had uh, even ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. And um, yeah, uh, Chuck, can you um, again go over real quickly? What? Thank you. All right. Thank thank you, Daniel. Well. Tomorrow night at uh, 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock, we're going to have this forum on battery storage. And there's going to be three speakers. Daniel is one, and there's uh, another speaker, Andrew Drushin, and he will speak on microgrids, which are the up-and-coming possibilities for um, everything from hospitals to colleges to even military bases are starting to think about having their own microgrid for working their power system out. And another speaker is going to be Jim Sanders. He's going to speak to uh, rooftop solar collection and battery storage and an off-grid possibility. And that's uh, local, and he will uh, give uh, an example of of how that is working for he and his wife, uh, Pat. And we will be doing these forums... um, for quite some time yet, and we hope you'll join us. Uh, it's a 7 to 9. It's in Honesdale at the Park Street Complex. That's the uh, county offices for the uh, conservation. It's um, almost directly across from the Wayne Memorial Hospital down in the hole where there used to be a school. Um, for information, you can call 570-245-1256. You can also go to our website, seedsgroup.net, and you can get information on this uh, forum there as well. Chuck, thank you so much. Good. here on Making Waves, we're going to be speaking with Delaware Currents publisher and editor Meg McGuire. She's going to talk to us about the uh, federal funding that Congressman Antonio Delgado was discussing in relationship to the Upper Delaware River. Thanks for joining us, Meg. Hi there, Barbara. How are you doing? I'm doing just great. How about you? 
<laughs> Very good. I um, I think I finally dried out. Um, I went to this upper the Upper Delaware. The Friends of the Upper Delaware do a conference um, every year in the autumn, and as part of that conference, they did a tour of some of the sites that's uh, that our uh, people are working on because of this federal money, which was really interesting. Except it was really wet because <laughs> 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 it was one of those really bad rainy days. Um, and then uh, last week I went to a conference in uh, Allentown, and they had a similar tour about a different set of projects um, on the Mesconectong River in New Jersey, and that was also a rainy day. So between the two. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. We've, we've had some beautiful days. I'm sorry you weren't out there on one of them. <laughs> that's right. Um, but what I was going to talk about tonight was um, the Friends of the Upper Delaware River are uh, – Part of uh, one of the one of the sort of not for profits that are sort of deeply connected in the whole not for profit community in the Delaware River watershed, and the folks of the Delaware River watershed about three or four years ago they started pushing hard to get money from the federal government to support projects in the Delaware River watershed. They first had to pass um, a law, an act, uh, creating the Del- Delaware River Watershed Conservation Fund. And then they actually had to fund it. So that's usually a double push. You have to push to get legislation, and they have to get push. Get, uh, you have to push to get funding. But um, what is? Uh, it's certainly remarkable that the Delaware has not had the funding that other estuaries, like the Chesapeake or the Great Lakes, Great Lakes aren't an estuary, but they're a significant water body. There has been funding for other water bodies like that, but there has been no federal money for the Delaware. Wow. Um, now there is. Uh, it started out uh, like a year and a half ago, um, and now I think a total of $12 million has been uh, fed into the watershed for projects of all sorts up and down, up and down the river. And they're having, you know, have to do with, like, um, construction of better culverts that prohibit a little bit more of the flooding that is so common in our, uh, all, all over the watershed. Or um, battling knotweed, which is a real problem for the Upper Delaware, um, all sorts of different projects. And um, the uh, Friends of the Upper Delaware River, working with Trout Unlimited and the Coalition for the Delaware River Watershed, managed to land $1.2 million of that federal funding for 12 projects in Sullivan and Delaware counties. Wow, that's a lot. Um, and if you're interested in what they are, there's a story on my site um, uh, about U.S. Rep. Antonio Delgado promises support for Delaware River Congressional Caucus. And in that story, at the end of the story, there's a map and a list of the projects. Um, okay. And, pe- and one people, of the is that on really your? Interesting, I'm sorry, sorry. Is that on your website or the Facebook yeah. page? Okay, it's on the. No, no, it's on the website. Okay, great, great. Um, one of the things that's really, I think, important to note about what the Friends of the Delaware River and the uh, Trout Unlimited folks have done is that they've formed partnerships with municipalities so that it's not just, um, you know, the tree-hugging environmentalists coming along and deciding what's good for a particular town. They tended to have many, many meetings where they could sort of find out what the concerns are of the people who actually live there and what is it you can do to that will sort of benefit the environment but also help the people? So you're not just, you know, sort of blindly building culverts to sort of prevent flooding that end up perhaps not working so well for the environment, but you're building culverts that prevent flooding that are also good for the environment. So there's, um, there's a real sense of collaboration, which I think is um, uh, in some ways a model for many of the uh, not-for-profits in the watershed to sort of um, advance the environmental cause by really having some grassroots relationships with the people that live in the communities as well as the officials who are, have the responsibility uh, for those municipalities. And how much funding did you say that was? $1.2 million. $1.2 million. That's all for the Upper Delaware. Um, it wasn't so much granted as a lump sum of $1.2 million. It, it That is the total of the 14 projects. I see. Okay, and that so sounds each like of those my... projects applied for money separately. And then I see. Uh, there might have been other projects that applied for money that didn't get it, but it was a total 
that was the total of money that was coming into the Upper Delaware because of this new conservation fund. Do you get a sense that this is multi-year funding, or is it for just the coming but year? Most of these projects are, they look to be um, a, short ter- a short-term, you know, infrastructure project um, or a two- or three-year study. Um, but my feeling, my sense of it is that as many projects as they have um, almost ready to go, there are other projects that are in the works, and that uh, in subsequent years there will be other requests for funding coming from the Upper River. Um, the funding has to be reauthorized every year. The first year, I think, it was for $5 million. I think they're trying to up the amount to $10 million. And so every year, Congress has to reauthorize that funding. And depending on what funding is authorized, that's how much money can dis- be distributed. Okay. So the $5 million was for the whole river, and then the $1.2 million uh, for pretty much the upper Delaware. Something like that, yeah. Okay. Well, interesting. And do you get the sense that since Antonio Delgado, the congressman, announced this, was he the one, the sponsor of all of this? Um, no. Uh, the... Um, I think Antonio Delgado is um, working hard to understand the district that he represents, which is quite a sprawling district. It crosses the Hudson and then comes all the way down to Sullivan and uh, uh, Delaware counties. Um, He is aware of how rural this community is and is very respectful of that. Um, I got the sense that he has spent a lot of time with farmers and especially dairy farmers trying to understand what their what their situation is, which is, um, if I can be blunt, not great these days. Mm. Um, But he is also, uh, uh, I think, um, this whole process probably predated when he was elected uh, because it takes a long time to build a consensus of what projects need to be done and then sort of to gather, because you have to get one-to-one support, one-to-one financial support um, for this. so he was at doing this press conference more as part of the celebration for the funding rather than to necessarily claim that he, you know, he did any of the work involved. But one of the things he also did when he was there, two things that are important for the whole Delaware watershed, is that he said, because I asked him <laughs> if there's Delaware River Congressional Caucus, and he said he didn't know whether there was one. And I said, if there is one, would you join it? And he said, yes. And if there isn't one, I'll create it, is what he said, which was, that's great, because, as you know, since the Delaware is the border between four states, it often doesn't get the same sort of um, state awareness that um, perhaps it should. So getting the congressional districts aligned behind um, funding for the Delaware is probably a really good thing. And the other thing he said as you know, I have been beating on this particular drum for a while. The feds, the feds have never contributed what they mm. said they were going to contribute for the Delaware River Basin Commission. Yes. Um, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania uh, consistently underfund. The only state that actually lives up to their full fair share um, is Delaware. And he said at this press conference that he believes the federal government should live up to its responsibilities. So, Interesting. Did he know that the federal government had not been doing that? Mm, no. Oh. <laughs> no nobody, nobody knows about this stuff until I tell them. <laughs> I was going to say that must have been another point of awareness raised by Delaware yes, Currents. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, and, and, the, the, and the truth is, I mean, I, Jesus, um, the folks that, um, especially when you're fairly new to Congress, there's so much to learn about districts and stuff like that. I certainly don't doesn't bother me in the least that he didn't know about it, but I was very glad to hear that he took the issue very seriously because, um, you know, you can not like or not like the DRBC and the decisions that it makes, but the honest fact of the matter is they are the body responsible for the water quality and quantity in the Del- main stem Delaware River. And as a result, they need to have at least the funding that they were promised, mm-hmm. oof, God, mm-hmm. 20 years ago, in order to fulfill that function effectively. Well, it's it's just nice to have government keep a promise. So, so that's great that you that you brought that up, and uh, we'll have to keep tabs on this one as well, Meg, and and see who <laughs> fills, fulfills their promises this time. But thank you so much for once again uh, 
keeping us up to date with the Delaware River, DelawareCurrents.com. That's your website. Is that Did I get that right? You did, indeed. Thanks okay. very much, Barbara. Thank you so much, Meg. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. And we have one last segment to bring to you here on Making Waves, late-breaking segment, and here's Kevin Graff to tell you more about it. Hello, Kathy. Hi. Okay. Um, there's going to be a movie, right, or a documentary. It's in- a film. It's a documentary. Inside uh, Peace. Inside Pro- Peace. Programs. Uh, well, can you tell us a little bit about it? That. Yeah. Inside Peace um, is... A documentary, uh, it was made by Cynthia, Fitz, Cynthia Fitzpatrick, who um, she spent four years making this film that um, she, she read about this program. Uh, originally it was called the Peace Class. Now it's called the Peace Education Program in um, San Antonio, Texas. And um, she was really impressed with the results that this program had in working with inmates who were um, basically angry and alienated and full of vengefulness and and uh, had lived lives of, you know, violence and addiction and desperate social conditions and all of that. And she wanted to tell this story, so she spent four years following the lives of these four men from their time in prison to their return home and kind of documents the struggle that they have to, first of all, in prison, to come to terms with their humanity and and realize what they needed to do to how they could get beyond the conditions that had so scarred their lives. And and then the struggle of reentry into society that um, doesn't really believe that rehabilitation is possible. So, um, you know, there's lots of issues coming home. Uh, it's It's pretty treacherous ground for people who have left it, gone to jail or prison, and then come back out. So we're showing this film, and um, afterwards there's a panel discussion with um, Carol Ryan and Jim Hobbs, who are facilitators for PEP at the Ulster Correctional Facility, and Laura Quigley, who is going to speak about the post-incarceration program that they're rolling out in Sullivan County. And um, our goal in creating this event is to spread the word about this program, and which happens to be also on the New York State, actually, official curriculum for correction. So it can be started in any prison or jail in the state. And to encourage people to look into maybe becoming facilitators so that we can, um, so that more programs can blossom. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is it. The, the, the evening is at the Hurleyville Arts Center, 6.30, Thursday, the 24th. Um, it's free. There, the theater is asking for a, an optional donation if you would like to contribute to the pay of the staff and so on there. And um, it should be a really interesting evening. This film has won many awards and has been chosen for many, many uh, film festivals. It's really supposed to be an excellent film. Okay. And that's it in a nutshell, unless you have other questions about it. Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, we're running out of time, Uh, Kathy. Um, Again, the... The name of the program is Inside Peace. Inside Peace is the name of the film. Is the name of the film, and it's about this program. Yes, the program is the Peace Education Program, which is in prisons, correctional facilities, and 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 uh, um, what's that called when you get out of prison? 
parole, parole um, yeah. I think. programs really all over the world, globally. It's, it's been very successful. Okay. Yeah. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. Well, thank and, you for helping us spread the word. Okay, and we that's going to be... lots of people there Thursday night. Thursday night, this Thursday at 6.30 at the Hurleyville Arts Center. Right. Right. Thank, thank you so much, Kathy. Thanks, Kevin. Right. Good night. Good night. And thank you for tuning in to Making Waves. 